Soul Pepper Community Conversations look at the intersection of our theatrical work and the larger world around us. For Jesus Hop the A-Train, we spoke with four lawyers on the front lines of Canada's justice system about what drives them and the change they are fostering within the system. This conversation was moderated by Artistic Director Queenie Mangesha and was recorded live at the Young Centre for the Performing Arts on February the 4th, 2020. I would love to invite our panelists to come up on stage. This is Emily Lamb, Anne-Marie Nadjor, Anthony Morgan. Just to tell you a little bit more about these folks that are up here with me. Uh, Anna Maria, she's a partner. She was the, the woman I named, I uh, mentioned, was uh, named one of the 50 most influential Torontonians last year um, for the work that she was doing with uh, the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty, which is incredible, and we'll talk more about that. Um, she also received a 2014 Pro Bono Award for being um, a part of the team that um, filed a class action lawsuit against New York City um, for the excessive force that people were using in Rikers Island, where our play takes place. So um, be, she has, I'm sure, a lot to talk about with um, in relationship to this play. Um, Faisal Mirza works um, with the firm Marza Kwok. Um, and he's appeared numerous times at the Supreme Court of Canada for um, uh, both cases of national importance, as I was talking about. We'll talk more about that. Actually, he's worked on a very significant case with Emily, who um, is for Cas from the Kastner Law Firm. Um, and I, I just took this quote because I think it's, it's beautiful, that she's uh, a mentor for many future lawyers and was quoted by saying, young women in this profession, especially racialized women, generally don't feel they have support from women, so I want to be a guiding pillar. And she's done um, a lot of incredible work um, in the justice system, but also outside of it. Um, the two of them have joined Anthony Morgan um, in a nonprofit that they've created called Sentencing and Parole Project. Um, Anthony Morgan himself also works um, as a civil liberties lawyer, but also has started a unit now, um, an anti-black racism unit at the city of Toronto. I'm sure there are a lot of questions that people have in the audience, but just to kick us off, because we just saw the play, um, and Mary Jane and some of the cast will be joining us, and um, we know about Mary Jane and sort of the turning point that she had, where it sort of moved from being work um, and moved into being a bit of a mission. And I wanted to know if the four of you could talk about maybe a point in your life where that happened or an inciting moment that made you know what you wanted to do with your life. A moment. I guess there, there are a number of moments. Um, I think the difficulty of being a criminal defense lawyer is that there are some cases, there are some times when you're like, should I still be doing this? It's a hard job. It's a really difficult job. Um, the, the ask uh, is not simply to know the law, um, to apply the law, to challenge the law. Uh, there is a huge, as you saw in the play, there's a huge emotional um, toll that it takes. Um, partially because, you know, it's just feeling compassionate, uh, feeling um, some of the stresses uh, and anxieties that your client has. Um, there is the ask of time. Uh, there is no nine to five. It is probably a 26 hour a day job. Um, there is choosing sometimes your job over your family. Um, and so the ask is huge. So in terms of a, a, a moment, um, I would say there are a series of moments for me uh, where I go and I ask myself, do I still want to do this? And so far the answer has always been yes, thankfully. Uh, but 
Um, I would say that there are times when, you know, I, I wonder if the answer should be no. Uh, but so far, still in the game. Just um, echoing off of some of the difficulties that Emily touched upon, going into criminal defense is incredibly challenging because in and of itself, it's a countercultural project. Um, we instinctively as humans want to find um, justice through vengeance. And we have this desire to punish those who are wrongdoers. And what a criminal justice, what a criminal defense lawyer does is stand up and say, no, there is still humanity in this human being who has transgressed our social mores, who has harmed people, who has, um, who has done things that are so despicable, or maybe not, because oftentimes it comes with a bias or an assumption that they have, but you need to overcome that through the presumption of, of innocence. But it's, it's a, an endeavor that's not easy because it is counterintuitive as a human being. We often hear expressions like, where there's smoke, there's fire, um, or you know, a person is accused of something, therefore they're guilty of it. And it's very difficult to, um, go up against that natural human instinct, that crowd mentality, that desire to convict rather than suspend reasoning and suspend judgment. And so it's very, I think, intellectually challenging and morally challenging in that way. In terms of a moment in time where um, I sort of knew that this was my calling, I had finished law school not knowing what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to help people, but really, like, what does that mean? Um, and having being growing up sort of as a racialized person in Toronto, I was very acutely aware, and in some cases had personal experience of the brutality of the of of contact with the criminal justice system. And so I feel like people in that have had that experience have one of two responses. One is I'm going to jump in. And, and fix it and fight it, or I'm going to run away because I don't believe that I have the strength to bear this burden on my own. And my instinct had always been to, that I don't think I have the strength to, to bear this on my own, or even in community. I don't want to think about it. I want to live the dream life where I don't have to encounter brutality and horror on a daily basis. So I went to law school, moved to the United States um, after practice, after um, clerking um, at the Supreme Court, and was in a very comfortable position at a international law firm in Manhattan. And then a file came to our office, which was a um, class action lawsuit against the New York City Department of Corrections, which runs the Rikers Island jail system, Rikers Island and six other jails in New York. And so I thought this would be a really good opportunity to you know, test some of my social justice um, chops and get involved in something that's really meaningful and get some really excellent work experience. And I had no idea the response that I would have to seeing what criminal justice system is in practice. Uh, it is a brutal system that is largely focused on punishing and then forgetting racialized individuals, especially in the United States. There's no congruity between justice and the justice system. It's Kafkaesque, it's distressful, it's anxiety-inducing, and that's just from somebody who's watching it operate on the outside. 
if you go into Rikers Island jails, what you see essentially are reams and reams of black men in cages. And you think about where you've seen this image before. And I remember being like, this is so familiar. And I'm thinking, this looks like slave ships. And the continuation from America's oppression um, uh, and enslavement of African Americans, and then through the hard fought journey towards emancipation, how that was then undone through the implementation of criminal justice um, laws and reforms that essentially meant to replicate and reproduce the carceral aspects of the United States justice system. And I'll give, us, I'll give an example of it. In um, many southern states, including Mississippi and Alabama, um, upon emancipation, um, lots of miners, mines, for example, in Georgia, lost all their workers for free labor. So the state of Georgia created a number of laws that really made it very easy to incarcerate black men and use their labor for slave like purposes. So if a black man was walking across the street and he looked at a white woman funny, he was arrested. And his sentence was 25 years of hard labor. And so you see men who were, who in a slavery system were, were, would have been enslaved in those same conditions, it's now being reproduced, but through the guise of criminal justice. And that same mentality continued throughout the criminal justice system in the United States and it stood out to me as something that I could not turn away from. I couldn't hide from. It was a reality. It was something that once had been seen could not be unseen. Um, and so to me, that was, that was it. I said, I have to go into criminal justice system because there is nothing more important to do with my law degree than a fight for liberty. Good evening, folks. Check, check. Good evening, folks. Um, so uh, unlike the, the rest of the folks on the panel, I've actually never practiced as a criminal defense lawyer. I've done a lot of work as it relates to criminal justice reform from a policy perspective. And why that is is largely because some of the crushing realities that uh, you, you both have spoken to in different ways, and I imagine Faisal will speak to to some extent, I did make an early assessment for myself when I said, I, I don't think I have what it takes to stand in the gap in the way these folks did. I was inspired to go to law school because of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and reading the ways in which they used knowledge of the law, particularly one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party, uh, Huey P. Newton. He had gone to law school for a year, and he'd taken that knowledge and information about the United States Constitution to understand how black communities could protect themselves from police violence. And that's the interest that I had. How can I take this, this uh, body of knowledge, the law, that tends to be over-professionalized and distant despite the fact that it's supposed to, or does, govern the rest of our lives, and use it to protect folks who are being violated by the state? And so that was my inspiration in high school. And so my, my engagement with the criminal justice system has largely been to uh, try to democratize knowledge of the law. So when I was practicing, I was practicing as a, as a policy lawyer. And the, with the work I've, I've done ever since law school, interesting fact, uh, Anna Marie and I had gone to law school, so I have a connection to 
all these folks in different, uh, we were in the same class, in fact. Uh, we went to law school together, I meant to say. Um, so ultimately, what I wanted to do is see how I can go at fixing these systems in a different way. From those days, why, why I pointed to, to that, that history of, the, of, of what I was uh, doing from the days of law schools, is trying to open public consciousness about what's happening in, in creative, engaging ways through doing a lot of public advocacy and organizing and, and writing, and also creative work, too. So there is a, a, a play that, that I was in a, a couple of years ago that highlighted the realities of, of police brutality uh, in our systems. And, and so I wouldn't say there was necessarily a moment in practice, but my uh, initial unction to go into this space came, came in high school when I said, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to take this information and then try to get it out to black communities and their supporters so that we can protect ourselves from state parties that are not protecting us who should be. Good evening, everybody. Um, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. And thank you to all of you for staying late tonight to, to listen to us. Uh, it's a real privilege and honor to be here. Um, for me, you know, I think it's kind of a beautiful question to, to think about what gets you to the point of committing yourself to a life in criminal justice, to a career in criminal justice. Um, and so I was thinking about this um, when we received um, some of the notes that we'd be speaking about, and um, it dawned on me that probably the turning point for me was when um, I was in grade 11 or 12, and the news hit, and I saw the video recording of Rodney King being beaten on the side of the road um, by police officers in Los Angeles. And I thought to myself when I saw that, seeing a human being lying face down, um, being beaten repeatedly by officers who were armed and using their batons to strike him of the head and of the body, over and over and over again. And then following that case and seeing the officers get acquitted um, and their trial being moved uh, strategically to a place that was a community that was going to be more sympathetic to the police officers, um, that left a permanent mark on me. Um, it became sort of a catalyst for me to want to be involved in human rights. And it was um, a turning point for me because I thought about, and you have to keep in mind uh, the time period, this is not when cell phones had video cameras um, on them. This was an individual who recorded it with one of those old conventional type of cameras um, who actually got out um, and recorded the interaction. And so um, what about all the people who suffer that who don't have their experience recorded? It is the crystallization of when an accused person becomes a victim. When someone who has committed a nonviolent offense is on the receiving end of the most inhumane, egregious type of misconduct, and then it's recorded, and the people are not held accountable. And so, I may not have known exactly at that point that I was going to be a defense lawyer, but I certainly wanted to be involved in human rights work. And I went through my undergrad and studied those things. I went and did a master's degree and then went to law school. 
And it sort of ended up in the logical place, which was to be a criminal defense lawyer, which in my view is the optimal form of human rights work. It is um, standing up for people's rights. It is advocating for the people who are marginalized. Um, It is um, being the last line of defense for people who are mistreated. So um, I thank you for the question that's made me think a lot about it. And I think that that was probably one of the turning points in my life. Amazing. I'm sure there's some questions that people want to ask. I just want them to know a little bit about the work that you're doing. Three of them happened to, and we didn't know this. We invited them separately. Three of them have started a, a nonprofit together, Sentencing Parole. Can you talk about that a bit? We all have, I, I think you can tell, sort of a, um, a common interest in uh, representing the interests of people that are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. In particular, um, we have a problem in Canada um, we are not immune to this, where we have a disproportionate number of racialized people that are incarcerated. Um, one of the fundamental problems with our system, maybe let me, I'll take a step back, let me say something positive. Um, we have probably one of the best trial and appeal legal systems in the world. It is a model for other countries. Um, it is um, a place that I am very proud of when I argue cases in the trial courts or the appeal courts. But we also have one of the most deeply flawed um, approaches to sentencing and jail systems in the world. And so working in the criminal justice system for almost the past 20 years, um, it becomes inescapable, particularly uh, in the Toronto area, that if you walk into any courthouse, you will see a disproportionate number of um, black people being sentenced routinely by judges who don't have any understanding of why they're there. What is their life experience that has brought them before the court? And one of the things about the play that resonated with me was that you had these two characters very differently situated um, showing you um, different sides of their personality, the humanity in them, their complex backgrounds, the trauma that they've experienced in life that has contributed to their behavior. Sometimes it's mental health, sometimes it's addiction, and it's racism. And our court has done an inadequate job, our courts in general have done an inadequate job in trying to understand that information before imposing multiple years of jail on people. So we started this project to essentially put that information before trial judges, to have Qualified people, um, social workers, psychologists, academics work together collaboratively with lawyers to sit down with the clients and talk to them in a humane way and ask them about what it was like to grow up in their community, what it was like to be streamed in schools, what it was like to be um, impacted by when the Children's Aid Society would come to their home and threaten apprehension and taking them away from their parents. Um, what it was like for their parents um, to deal with discrimination and employment. Whole host of factors that are very important for a judge to understand before they pass sentence. And we found um, in the cases that we've been able to do that so far um, that it has had a profound effect um, and that judges are now starting to open their eyes to the fact that they've been sentencing people without without adequate information about their backgrounds. Actually, Emily and Faisal were part of 
um, a landmark superior, uh, case um, in 2018 with Jamal Jackson, um, which I encourage you to read about because um, it's 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 it was you know it, it was it was recognized that there was overt and systemic racism. Um, so the work that they have already begun this um, for profit, just yeah, it, it's it's incredible that the. Um, that yeah, the working together to be able to make to create the awareness for this. Um, are there questions? I would love to. Yes. Um, was it not prior to that pre-sentence reports being um, submitted to judges to make a decision on sentencing? Who wants to talk about the problems with pre-sentence reports? <laughs> um, they are prepared by the state. Um, they are prepared by people employed by the state and. Uh, Oftentimes, there isn't the time, energy, resource to actually delve deeper into a person's life. You can understand that from an accused person's perspective, they might be quite um, mistrustful of, of that person. Uh, and they are sort of done in a very standard format. You know, depending on who you get as a, as a pre-sentence report writer, probation officer, um, they could be excellent or they could be not so great. Um, so, you know, I think what we're seeing and what we're hearing, at least with the um, assessments that are being done, known as impact of race and culture assessments, is that there is far more information um, in these reports that enable a judge to better understand this person's um, personal and social history. There is also a, a part of these assessments that deal with um, the impact of historical and systemic racism in the person's life and how it's been reflected. Uh, and so that is, that is an important factor that, that can be taken into consideration in sentencing. Thank you for that. Any other questions? Yes. Um, my question is for Anna Maria. Um, in the play, you know, the main character being accused of, or being, having been convicted of uh, eight murders, um, you deal with cannabis amnesty, and I just want to, do you mind just shedding some light on sort of the rates of incarceration and how many of the people that are behind bars are violent criminals and how many of the people with criminal records are tied up in the criminal justice system are people who are caught with a joint, just some of them. I don't have the numbers uh, of that for that off the top of my head. The numbers that I've most recently looked at um, deal with uh, rates of incarceration, growing rates of incarceration. The reason that I have those numbers off the top of my head is because um, there have been recent uh, op-eds and articles written about the huge systemic problem that we have with the over-incarceration of both Indigenous and African Canadians in our criminal justice system. Over the past 15 years, the rate of incarceration for African Canadians has grown by 70%, seven zero. Um, in, in 1999, when the Supreme Court wrote a landmark decision called GLADU about the need to take systemic discrimination um, and pass the legacy of colonialism into account when sentencing Indigenous Canadians and looking at the ways in which this legacy has had an impact on their life decisions and therefore their degree of moral blameworthiness, um, the court was calling out 
um, the rate of incarceration at the time as being a catastrophic number. At that time, it was around 13%. It's now 40%. So we're not getting any better. We're getting worse. And it's getting worse. And this is at a, also at a time where the rates of incarceration of white Canadians is declining. And it's also at a time where criminal rates in general in Canada, the crime rate is dropping. So that begs the question, what the heck are we doing? Um, in terms of incarceration for drug offenses, drug possession offenses, um, simple drug possession offenses, unless there is a history of maybe perhaps or in conjunction with trafficking, they rarely receive significant custodial sentences. Um, but what it does do for an individual is it saddles them with a criminal conviction for the rest of their lives, which is, in my experience, just as as detrimental to a person's life outcome as having spent a month or two in prison because it impedes a person from crossing the border, um, from working, from volunteering, from being, uh, from getting, um, from sitting on, on a board, from um, participating in their ch children's activities if there's a vulnerable ch sector check. There are all the, there's all this ongoing stigma that really lasts for the rest of a person's life. It's a de facto life sentence, um, but not a custodial life sentence. So that, in my mind, is equally as important as sort of the trauma of being in custody. But all of those numbers, I mean, you can, so you can find some of those numbers, especially the most salient ones about custodial sentences and proportion of custodial sentences with respect to um, cannabis-related offenses on the Cannabis Amnesty, um, Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty website. It's just cannabisamnesty.ca. Uh, but there are also um, an, a very, there's also a couple of easy to use tools um, on Statistics Canada website called the Community Crime Tracker, where you could disaggregate um, crimes by um, rates of population, by rates of crime per population. And that's something that I, I, I teach a course on bias and criminal justice system outcomes, and I use that with my students. So we have a sense of you know, what, what are the real numbers on the ground. The other issue, and sort of a caveat to that, is Canada's really bad at collecting accurate data and disaggregating it in meaningful ways. So we, um, it's taken a lot, of, a lot for us to see the purpose behind determining whether or not a person who is in jail is, or in, in prison, federal custody, is an indigenous person or a black person. Those numbers matter because they tell us the overrepresentation of certain groups, but Canada's been very reluctant to collect that. So data collection is another serious problem that we have that impedes us being able to diagnose the degree of problem and therefore come up with the adequate prescription. So basically, um, there are several agencies on the ground or, or non-profit organizations which really want to reduce um, the victimization or the presence of racialized you know, in the system. So what are some of the most strategic groups the agencies like to be able to connect with allies like who are really looking at systemic needs? So basically our goal is to create a system where young black people or racialized youths future not destroyed by impact or contact with the justice system. So what are some ways in which very practically um, we have agencies like mine and many of them who want to connect and support to work with professionals like us as we're working on something? Uh, so I think I can speak to that. Uh, in the work that I do at the City of Toronto now, I work 
I, I'm uh, the manager of the City of Toronto's Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit, and uh, what our unit does is work to implement uh, an action plan that has de been developed uh, by black communities in partnership with the city to address some of the socio-systemic challenges that black folks experience in the city. And so a practical uh, way of connecting is, is reaching out. We can have that conversation, not just you, but anybody who wants to see different ways of addressing issues in, in, in housing, healthcare, education, employment, those broader contextual factors that can often, well, the, without which we're, we're not considering that well-being, folks are much more likely to be involved in the justice system. We have a number of projects and initiatives that we are uh, leading or supporting in collaboration with uh, black-serving organizations or allied organizations to address some of those challenges. And some of that work is uh, directly focused on and connected with addressing policing. So the police are at the table, but they're not controlling the narrative, or uh, they've come on board because part of where the action plan came from is the resistance of Black Lives Matter Toronto, speaking specifically to the historic injustices that have existed and that continue to be perpetuated through a lack of accountability for the ways in which uh, black communities are, are violently policed. And so we can talk about incarceration, but it's really important that we talk about it in, in the context that has us think about the practice of carding. When we're thinking about incarceration, often it, and I think this is not, I think it is uh, deliberate that a lot of the spaces of incarceration are out of sight, out of mind. And so the, the, I think the play is really powerful and it's really important and I'm really glad it's showing, but there's, the, but there's also a bigger part that is much more immediate and relevant. The police that we see every day, there's a station not too far from here. There is, has been for decades a practice of specifically targeting, monitoring, surveilling, and engaging in higher rates of engagement with racialized communities, particularly black communities in this city uh, and across Canada is largely uh, indigenous folks. And so we have to be able to think about, well, how are police systems governed? Well, there's a local board, a Toronto Police Services Board, and they have uh, monthly meetings, for instance, that folks can, this, I'm thinking about a practical engagement, can go to, you just sign up, do a deputation and say, hey, I've, I've seen this as a, a reality in my community, I want to see this change. If more and more people start showing up to those police services board meetings, then that board has an obligation because the folks on it are, are supposed to be representatives of the public to constructively respond. And so that, those are just two ways, engaging with the unit, but also showing up to those police services boards, because the board is what controls the service. They sort of set the overall framework, and then the, the chief of police is supposed to implement. So those are two uh, particular ways, but I'm sure other folks have, have other ideas as to what can be done. I don't have any specific uh, recommendations because I'm not quite involved in community organizing. I'm just involved in the legal side of things. Um, but one thing in terms that, that I think is really, really important for community organizations is that, that want to focus on empowering black, black young people in this area is be really resistant of community policing. I think that is a red herring. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, I am always struck by how police seek to infiltrate vulnerable communities under the guise of community policing um, and, and do so with a purpose that is not altruistic. It is surveillance-based. Um, there may be, there are always going to be good police officers 
there's, I'm, I'm not demonizing the whole system, but fundamentally, there's a systemic problem, and why don't we have community policing in Forest Hill? Because they don't care. They don't want to watch you know, rich people in Forest Hill. They want to watch people in these communities that have been deemed high needs. And why are they high needs? Because there's police there all the time. So how are you going to solve community policing through community policing? So I'm very resistant and incredibly suspicious, and I guess, again, this is like the civil libertarian and defense lawyer in me, but very suspicious of any endeavors that seek to, under the guise of altruistic involvement, without actually dealing with the systemic underpinnings of power imbalance that allow them to enter into communities, I'm always suspicious of those kinds of programming. So if someone's going to come into your community and say, we want community policing so we can help you monitor and prevent crime, we'll say, what are you going to do with my son, my cousin, my grandson, my uncle, if they have a joint on them on the side of the street? Can you just, not, can you just leave them alone, let them walk away, or are you going to arrest them? If they can't answer that question by saying, we will exercise compassion by not arresting somebody for something that's nonviolent because that's not the role that we have here, then be very suspicious of what their actual purpose is. Well, I want to thank you. I know it's been a, a, a long evening for everyone, um, but we'll be around to talk more with anybody who wants to stick around. Thank you so much for being a part of this. A big, big round of applause to our incredible panel. <laughs> Doing incredible work tirelessly. And, uh, and yeah, we'll be playing to the February 23rd, so please spread the word. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our major sponsor, Scotiabank. Learn more about all that we do at soulpepper.ca.